It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome in to World Soccer Talk Radio here on the Sports Byline Broadcasting Network. My name is Nate Abarea. Pleasure and privilege to be with you every day right here live on Sports Byline 1 to 2 Pacific Time, 4 to 5 on the Eastern Seaboard. Special hello to the men and women listening overseas via the American Forces Network. Check out the website, worldsoccertalk.com, and you know how you can subscribe to us and listen to us on demand in podcast form. iTunes, and leave us a review on iTunes when you get a chance. Tune in, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. I am very excited for today's show, and tweet me your take on all of our shows at NateWST, and tweet all of us at World Soccer Talk. I'm very excited for today's show because we have someone on who I greatly respect, and I respect all the guests on this show, don't get me wrong, but as a radio broadcaster and as someone who interviews people on a daily basis, I very much look up to this man. He is a, uh, he's an accomplished author of, of books on, on Barcelona and the Spanish national team. He's a Sky Sports reporter. He's a journalist for the Daily Mail, but how I truly fell in love with this man work is a series of podcasts called The Big Interview, featuring interviews with many of the biggest names in soccer, and they are so brilliant and they are so unique. I speak, of course, of a man by the name of Graham Hunter, and we're going to talk all about The Big Interview series, as well as a new Kickstarter project that Graham is a part of. And the interviews recently that I've listened to with the likes of Gary Neville and, and Jamie Carragher, my God, the Jamie Carragher one entitled Istanbul, 10 years on, uh, that was recorded uh, last year, a few months ago. The, the interviews with Harry Redknapp, the interviews with David Moyes, the, the interviews with so many other legends have just been absolutely fantastic. And these, these soccer personalities who are normally so guarded, they seem so comfortable when talking with Graham. So I want to talk with Graham about what it is about his interviewing style that makes these big names of the game feel so at ease when they're talking to him. Cannot wait to get this show underway. Graham Hunter with us on the other side of this break. It's World Soccer Talk Radio, Sports Byline, the Broadcasting Network. Listening 
listening to World Soccer Talk Radio with your host, Nada Barea, on the Sports Byline Broadcasting Network. Welcome back to the radio show, World Soccer Talk Radio, here on the Sports Byline Broadcasting Network. My name is Nate Abarea, and as promised, a, a guest that I am very, very excited to have on the show today. Again, a, a accomplished author of a couple of books on Barcelona and the Spanish national team, a Sky Sports reporter, journalist for the Daily Mail. But what really has drawn me to this man's work, I, I speak of it again, and we'll talk about this all throughout the show today. He's the host of the Big Interview series of podcasts featuring interviews with many of the biggest names in soccer. Graham Hunter, thank you so much for joining us, sir. Nick, good afternoon. Nice to, nice to talk to somebody from uh, California. Um, I hope it's beautiful with all of you today, this evening. El Nino is in full force right now, so we are uh, currently uh, in a bit of a deluge uh, here in, in northern, northern California, but, but we carry on staying dry uh, for the interview, and, and I want to go right into to your big interview series. It, it's something that is, I, I feel so unique because these guests that I speak of, and I already brought up Gary Neville, Jamie Carragher, Harry Redknapp, David Moyes, the, the list goes on and on as far as these names that you've had in, in this series these guests seem so at ease and and relaxed when when you interview them and and before we talk about kind of the intricacies of the style of the show i want to ask you how this thing got started the big interview series graham well look uh nate i'll, I'll, I'll try to be frank and, and honest but it's obviously difficult to talk about something that you do um where you're one-on-one with people and and if i'm being analytical about it it, it, it could sound cocky or arrogant so what I'll always try to explain is our aims. I'm very lucky. You mentioned a couple of books that I've had published. I'm very lucky that my publishers, um, are, it's a two-man company called Backpage Press, and it's stocked by um, Neil White and Martin Gregg. And they came to me and they said, um, podcasts. And I had no idea what that meant. That was last March, let's say. I literally didn't know what a podcast was. Um, the life of a European football reporter, particularly a freelance like me, is busy. You're traveling a lot. I put a lot of um, stake on person-to-person contact with footballers, whether it's one-on-one or in mix zones. You need to go to a lot of games. And I, I don't have a lot of downtime, which I think people use um, in order to listen to podcasts. And they said, what we want to do is replicate the type of old-fashioned, long, in-depth interview that newspapers used to do, um, that became the territory of soccer magazines. And they said, in, in general, in the UK media, we don't see anybody doing that, where you can get um, an interesting character in soccer to, to speak at length about subjects that maybe aren't the issues of the day, but to give people what used to be the term was to give people a good read. And they said, um, we suspect that um, there's also a gap in the podcast market initially in the UK with their, with their idea. And they said to me, well, you do it. I said, look, you, you've come to me with two good book ideas before. I trust you. So, okay, let's try. And we began with Gary Neville. And he said, yes. And we chatted to each other in a studio in Sky um, before Gary did Monday Night Football for Sky and before I did Revista de la Liga. And maybe the, the best way to explain it, Nate, is that we, all we wanted to do was to try to get football people to talk more as we knew they could do. Um, because it, it, it's hard to explain this without being critical uh, laterally. But if 
if I look certainly at the the media, the football media in in the UK, there has developed and there's fault on both sides an adversarial, um, lacking in trust relationship between large sections of the media and the football industry. Now, when you meet um, coaches, managers, directors, chairmen, but particularly footballers, you understand that it's very rare that they are as as pompous, as arrogant, as self-satisfied, or as um, lacking in, in common touch or intelligence as they allow themselves to often be portrayed because of the actions of a few. And I just, I literally wanted to allow the beauty of the game of football to emerge via the main protagonists who caught my admiration, explaining about their life, their attitudes, their career. And I, I didn't want there to be news values in this. Other people do that. I sometimes do that, but other medium, other media are responsible for breaking stories. I didn't want them to be adversarial, where sometimes one-on-one situation is vital that what you do is you put somebody under the spotlight and you push them and you ask them to answer the difficult questions. I set out without that intention. I wanted the glory of people who adore their profession, their career, who are still in the midst of it. We've, I, I think it was a reasonable achievement that Alan Pardew, the current Crystal Palace manager, Michael Carrick, a starting midfielder for Manchester United in England, Darren Fletcher, the captain of West Brom, they all agreed to come on it as well because it's far easier for legends of the game like Terry Butcher or Chris Wardle or Graham Souness, um, Gary Neville and Jamie Carrick to, to speak retrospectively, to speak more openly but when you get people who are currently engaged in Premier League work, that to me echoed back what you started by saying, Nate, that I've been really surprised about how we have been able to make people relax, trust us, and hopefully tell good stories. When we hear from these players on on the big interview, I, I sometimes feel like I'm hearing entirely different human beings from the ones that we hear in the, the breaking news world that you speak of. I, I didn't know how to do... Um, what has emerged. I, I simply set out to talk to people that I liked and respected, and I only wanted to ask them the things I was curious about. But I guess there'll be people listening to your show who've never heard of it. And therefore, to, to maybe explain what you've categorized it as re, re, relatively successful and something you enjoy listening to, it is a surprise to me that in only about a dozen or so individual interviews, we've had 1.7 million individual downloads and I think that in, in, in all of my career and I started writing professionally in the late 80s and I've done radio and television books and magazines and tournaments and whatever since then I have never ever had so much positive feedback ever now I want to distance myself from taking uh, responsibility or credit for that because what I, I genuinely uh, believe is that a lot of the people with whom I've spoken don't feel that football tells its own story properly in, in some of the UK or maybe even European media. I genuinely think what has happened is that the power of football, the, the fact that football consistently generates odd situations, consistently makes you think, um, consistently makes people, turns up odd characters, genuinely odd characters. If you listen to Harry Redknapp, podcast 
during that time when we were sitting in his huge new house, which literally was empty apart from Harry, myself, my colleagues from Backpage, his wife, her Pilates class, and, and a huge, great big dog called Barney, because Harry had just moved there. We talked about, it, it was quite an idiosyncratic occasion because the dog was barking, the house was empty and echoey. It was very evidently a new, a new place. He, he, he was so generous to allow us in because he just moved house the day before. And, and we talked about some obscure footballers, footballers that people in Britain have never heard of. I asked him a question about a footballer who died in the early 1960s hit by lightning under a tree in a golf course, a guy called John White. And as we were talking to Harry Redknapp, this magical, for me, magical, intricate, interesting, idiosyncratic man who's had a wonderful career in life and who I will miss badly when he retires. I was, in my own head, I was saying to myself, you've gone off the beaten track here so far that nobody listening is going to share your interest in these strange deals that he did, transfer deals he did in the lower leagues where he had to, sometimes he had to play a bit fast and loose. Sometimes he had to educate a player what income tax was. Um, I, once he was threatened with violence by a fellow manager, he talked a lot about John White, this player who died on a golf course in, in London, hit by lightning. And I, I was interested in the time, in the moment, but I didn't think, and people flooded us with their enjoyment of the detail and the oddities and the idiosyncrasies. And John, again, I don't want to be too um, diverse here, Nate, but John White's um, sister and brother, who are now in their 70s, didn't hear Harry talking about this man that he'd known when Harry was a boy at Tottenham Hotspur. They, they, his sister and his brother, John White, listened to this on Christmas Day because somebody brought them the podcast. And the person who brought them the podcast said that they were in tears listening to these great stories about their brilliantly talented brother. This, this man was a great loss to soccer because he was probably Scotland's most talented ever player. And that, I use that example because I simply ask the things that, that are curious. And I simply ask people to, to join in and maybe think about the game and talk about in the game that they're never asked to. And I just let it happen. And the, the skill isn't mine. The, the, the skill isn't the right word. The, the, the way it happens is that football unites us. Football makes us all feel the same passions. Football produces oddity, colour, drama, tragedy, mistakes. And most people in football are more thoughtful, more reflective about it than they're given the chance to show. And I think that's what we've stumbled upon. And, and that's why I want to break down any concept that we had a master plan that it would turn out like this. We just wanted people to be able to share anecdotes and stories and thoughts and analysis and perspective in a way that would scratch our itch, scratch our curiosity. And then we would see whether other people were interested in listening. It turns out that they are. Graham Hunter is our guest during World Soccer Talk Radio. We're back with more after this. Stay tuned. You're listening to World Soccer Talk Radio with your host, Nada Barea, on the Sports Byline Broadcasting Network. How'd you like to play football against the Germans? Why not? 
Well, there certainly is an elegance and simplicity uh, in in these in these interviews and and the heart to heart chats that really come out of of the speakers when you listen to them, and that's what makes them so special. As you as you said, Graham, these weren't any sort of master planned projects. I mean, these are truly heart to heart conversations with people on a human level, and and that well, definitely. Is- now, let me let me you you've, you've stimulated me to think back at two. I'll give two better examples. I had spoken to Michael Carrick at the Manchester United training ground before about the series of penalties which culminated uh, the Champions League final, which they won in, I think, 2008 in Moscow against Chelsea. And when I went back this time, I said to him during the podcast, I said, I hope you don't mind me asking this again, but I want you to tell me, because big kid, boy or girl, many more, I think, women play soccer in the States than they do even in the UK. But it's not a big girl thing. You, you dream about, let's see you're in a big match, your local cup, your school cup, your, your, your premier, your professional club cup, your national team in the World Cup. You dream of, if there's a penalty or a penalty shootout, how will I react? What will I be able to do? Which way would I put it? And we go to sleep, all of us who love soccer, dreaming of this. So that amazing penalty shootout between two English Premier League teams in Moscow, in the rain, with Alex Ferguson on one side, with Cristiano Ronaldo and Frank Lampard opposing each other, that, that mad moment when John Terry slips and misses. And, okay, so we know the drama. I just wanted a participant, Michael Carrick, to talk me through it. Now, we began to talk through it, and he got lost in the moment. We saw him change, and his gaze went away as he, as he, and he stopped in the middle of the anecdote and said, I'm there right now. I'm back there right now. And the hairs in the back of his neck were standing up. And he was, there was a little tiny shimmer of perspiration on his forehead. And he lost himself in the anecdote with the, the pressure, the tension, the joy. The thought about the walk up to the ball, how quickly he did it. The fact that he turned and didn't look after the John Terry. That really struck me. And it just happens to be the second example on penalties again. I'm fascinated by Dice Comendieta, this man who played for Valencia and Spain and eventually Middlesbrough. Now, he, he was almost infallible at penalties. And I asked him to describe his technique. And as he was describing his technique and the way that he regularly scored for Valencia, particularly against Real Madrid, he started to feel tense. And he felt a tension that had never afflicted him during the art of penalty taking with high pressure in front of many hundreds of thousands of people throughout his career. And in breaking down his technique and analysing his own science, he started to feel the nerves that had never afflicted him on the pitch. And boy, I, you know, I was like a kid at Christmas at that point because not only was I getting my questions answered, but I, I didn't need to do anything. These guys took over their own narrative and that was a joy to watch. Well, Graham, what do you think that says uh, about footballers in the moment? The fact that that these men can sometimes get chills, get shivers, get nervous when they're reflecting on something that that already happened. And yet when in that moment way back when, whether it was a week ago or or 10 years ago, they were just cool as a cucumber, as as calm as could be. I mean, what do you think that says about the power of of these conversations and and the way that that these things develop in in the human brains of of these footballers? That last bit is the most important. I think the human human psyche, um, I I wouldn't be the first mate to say that the human psyche is uh, like a Gordian knot, all tangled up 
up and knotted and muscly and, and difficult to unravel. And I think that the first thing to say is that long before it comes to sitting around and talking to these people, there, during a career, it's often best for a high-profile manager or a high-profile footballer to do what they, what's the great advice they say to people who go on tightrope? Don't look down. I think when your career is going well and your passing is exquisite or your managerial decisions are exquisite or your, um, say, your penalty taking or if you're a keeper and you're facing a penalty, there is a degree of research and preparation, but very often when things are going well, I stress, self-examination and describing or explaining something can be the antithesis to, to continuing the success. Now, if things aren't going well, or if you want to be like Pep Guardiola and always be a, feel you're giving yourself a competitive edge, then self-examination and um, poring over minute details can be a positive. But very often momentum, you know, if you think the wall of death of the motorcycle cycling around and around and around, that's, I think, what often keeps players at a high level. If you've got it good, if it's your talent, if it's your preparation, if it's the training you were given as a kid in the youth system and, and it's working for you, don't fix what ain't broke. And then afterwards, when you're no longer a footballer or a manager, when you're <clears throat> working in the media and you're more relaxed, then you can stop and you can pick it apart and you can say sometimes things that it was better not to say mid-profession. And I think some of that uh, comes out. But also I think, I genuinely go back to say that a lot of these people um, reflect and find that they've never enunciated some of the things that come out in not just this interview, but in good interviews. And I also think that there's a stimulus. Sometimes, for example, Graham Souness in talking to us about... Um, the European Cup, the, the old version of the Champions League, which Liverpool won in Paris against uh, Madrid in, I think, 1981, he'd, he'd forgotten until talking to us that there was just a standard uh, drug testing after the match and himself and the fullback Phil Neal were kept back in the Parc de France in the French capital, Paris. And when they came out, the rest of the team had gone. They'd left them behind. They'd won the European Cup final. Everybody had gone. The stadium was empty. The manager and the players. Nowadays, there'd be a bus. There'd be security. There'd be a member of the coaching staff with you every second. You, you, you know, they'd give you velvet slippers and probably a, a, I don't know, a, a couple of cans of beer to drink while you're waiting to do the necessary. But no, 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 no. The stadium was empty. Everybody had gone. They were literally left behind. <laughs> Neither of them spoke French. It was pouring with rain. They just made themselves European champions. And they didn't know how to get to the hotel. There was opposing fans, limited fans everywhere, milling about the streets outside the Parc de France. They were on their own. So Sunas said, I can't, I can't believe now in reflection that what we did was we stepped out in the middle of the street and hailed a cop van, the police van. So there was this dormobile full of armed police who were on standby for you know, p potential problems between French hooligans, it's their city, if there were any Spanish hooligans or Liverpool hooligans. And these two guys, who the French cops don't initially recognise, tried to explain to the French cops that 
in, in pidgin English that they are Liverpool players. They want to go to the hotel. They're lost and they'd like some help. And for initially, things are about to go badly wrong until soon as the idea of showing them the winner's medal and saying, <laughs> nous avons gagné. So uh, all I meant about that is because you asked about what is it, the power about the interview or whatever. That was something that Sunis was desperate to tell that day because he'd forgotten the anecdote. He'd forgotten that happened. And in, with some of the people that I speak to, uh, Chris Wardle, for example, regaled us with, he couldn't stop. Before we began recording, during the show, and then afterwards as well, he regaled us with the funniest things. Like, for example, turning up as one of the most expensive, expensive footballers ever in, in the history of the game, moving from Tottenham Hotspur to Marseille, in whichever year I forget, forgive me, I forget the year. Let, let, let's, let's call it 1987 or 1988, whatever it was. And he turns up there, um, and initially when he's coming for his um, medical and so on, there's a big fanfare and he's greeted like a, like a hero. But when he's actually signed and he's turning up for his first day for, of training about a month later, there's nobody from Marseille at the airport, no fans there. And suddenly he looks Hide in Marseille airport, not having any French himself, and sees there's media, and he goes, <laughs> yeah, well, at least that's that sort of the media. And the media come rushing up and ask him what songs he's going to be performing in the velodrome that night. <laughs> songs? What, what, what songs? And um, they, they think he's, uh, they think, I think Pink Floyd were playing that night in the velodrome, and they've mistaken him for Dave Gilmore. So this massive new signing for Marseille, who goes on to become an absolute hero there, Normally, if nobody bothered to turn up to meet him, they they think he's one of the leading rock. They think that he they think that he's one of the leading rock stars in in Pink they think, Floyd. They think They're... he's Dave. They think he's Dave Gilmore. And <laughs> all I mean is these stories. If you create the atmosphere, it's these stories kind of bubble to the surface and push their way out. And maybe, maybe that's part of the reason that people have enjoyed listening to it. That if you give the right people the right atmosphere and exercise your own curiosity, good things come out. You're listening to World Soccer Talk Radio with your host, Nada Barrea, on the Sports Byline Broadcasting Network. This man is absolute magic that belongs in a different galaxy altogether. Welcome back to the radio show. Nada Barrea and Graham Hunter here with you. And... We are going to, uh, before the show is over, Graham, we are going to take a trip up to the north of Scotland and uh, talk a little Aberdeen. I'm very much looking forward to that. I love you for this, baby. I love you for this. I'd I'd have done the rest of the interview anyway, but any mention of Aberdeen makes me ready to go. All right, but before we do that, it's like a mutual back-scratching here. We've got to talk a little Istanbul. We've got to talk a little Liverpool and go back to uh, one last big interview podcast, and it was the one with the great Jamie Carragher, and it was simply entitled Istanbul 10 Years On, and, and there were so many great stories within, some, some great Johnny Cash stories, some great true Merseyside Roots stories that, that go in-depth with Jamie Carragher's family and how it all connects to that that famous night in Turkey, May the 25th, 2005. Uh, I got to just throw it right to you, Graham. What did you take away the most? What did you enjoy the most about that conversation, which I encourage everybody out there uh, to go out and find. We'll give everybody the uh, the SoundCloud link to listen to to all of these episodes of the big interview series. But what did you enjoy the most and take away the most from that particular episode with one of my favorite footballers of all time, the great Jamie Kataka? All right, Jay. Um, Nate, uh, um, the, the way to explain it is that 
Um, I hadn't really known J- Jamie very well. I'd spoken to him for the first time when he was playing for England under 21s. And I'll be frank and say that, um, you know, I thought he might be the type of guy that might be a little bit intimidating. Um, what turned out was, and I found this really surprising, and this was one of the incentives to interview him, was that he's obsessed with Xabi Hernandez at Barcelona, even more than I am. And we first really, although we were colleagues at Sky Television, um, which is the, the major soccer broadcaster in the UK, um, Jamie had asked me, would I come and translate for him when he was interviewing Xabi Hernandez on Spain duty in Madrid? And I said, I was delighted to do that. Jamie was interviewing Xabi for his column in the Daily Mail newspaper. And I was the go-between, and I enjoyed it hugely. And what emerged was that Jamie is extremely knowledgeable about Spanish football. So that was the stimulus number one. Stimulus number two was finding out that Jamie and Alex Ferguson had got in contact with each other after Jamie finished playing. And Fergie was still the United manager. And obviously, albeit that Jamie grew up as an Everton fan, he's a Liverpool legend, as you've said, um, somebody who desperately wanted to beat Manchester United as much as Guy Neville from Manchester United wanted to beat Liverpool and therefore the fact that Jamie Carragher and Sir Alex Ferguson were going out to dinner and talking football with each other I found intriguing and I wanted to know about what blossomed however and I think this is what you're getting at was it just so happened that we the interview took place on the 10th anniversary of that extraordinary game when Liverpool were 3-0 down at half time to AC Milan Victims of one of the all-time great European goals scored by Hernan Crespo. Um, and then draw, 3-3, and then win on penalties. And the, the things that come away from me, just two little things come away from me. For example, I, I, I'd been living in Spain and therefore I hadn't known so much about the Liverpool Football Club culture and the fact that Johnny Cash's Ring of Fire had become an anthem, first for the players and then for the fans. And I was in Barcelona watching the final. It happened to be with uh, Arnau Riera, uh, who was captain of Barca B at the time, and who captained Leo Messi when he was still, when he was making his short six, seven months appearances with Barca B. Arnau and I were chums, and we were glued to the television together watching this thing. And at the end, when, when Liverpool have won, in the most unlikely circumstances, they're dancing around near the microphones, chanting the chorus from Ring of Fire by Johnny Cash, and I had no idea why. But in this interview, I said to Jamie, where did that come from, that thing that became completely identified with the Liverpool fans? And he said that it was his dad that began it all. His dad um, and his dad's pals used to get on a fairly drunken pub bus to games and got hooked on Johnny Cash's Ring of Fire, began to sing it. The players heard about this. Um, Jamie Stad is, in inverted commas, a character, a very colourful, strong man um, with a big reputation. It's well seen where Jamie's very strong, colourful character comes from too. And uh, suffice to say that it's typical of Jamie, the, the staunch Everton fan who becomes a Liverpool legend and is a central part of them winning that fantastic Champions League trophy that night. And, um, his dad's the one who started the Ring of Fire cult that, that sweeps the stadium and is still a part of Liverpool culture right now. And the other one was that Jamie's a very, Nate, you know this, Jamie's a very good football analyst now and as an ex-central defender, one of the things that he picks on most is when he sees the back four of teams as he's analysing on Sky Television, um, looking disjointed or a player who's gone to sleep, 
but one of the things he picks on most, and I had really good um, memories of a, of a segment he did talking about a central defender who would go walk about and chase the ball and follow forward and try and influence the game and be caught out behind him when the ball goes over his head. And of course, in the Champions League final, one of the goals, which I think is the penalty, in the build-up to the play, Jamie has, has been driving forward himself and, and follows on once he's passed the ball, looking for the chance to shoot from the edge of the box because his heart and his passion and his ability to put out fires all over the pitch, a little bit like Carlos Puyo, meant that Jamie's technical ability for a guy who began playing in midfield the fact that he could pass and shoot and was technically quite able, that got ignored a great deal, mate. But Jamie had followed up the passion of the moment meant that he was hanging an edge of the box. And I said to him in the interview, Jamie, who, who was that footballer just sort of go hanging at the edge of the penalty box? When he should be? Yeah, right, it was me. Um, and, he, and he coughed to it. And it was a pleasant, um, it was a, p- a pleasant way for him to recall the fact that um, it had been one of the great moments of his career. And I looked at him, I knew that he'd been physically, mentally, emotionally exhausted. And again, I was curious about, did he feel that? Did he, was he clinging on? Did he, did he think that he was about to make a mistake or that cramp might overtake him? Or, uh, when the cramps were, because it's famous, that he, you, know, you could see the, the pain he was going through. And he'd been unaware of it. He hadn't been, uh, he, he'd been almost as if he'd been in his own zone, his own bubble. Um, about this utter determination not to let the game go now that they'd pulled the way back into it. And it was only absolutely afterwards that he kind of fell apart completely. And uh, look, it was was a fantastic chat about one of the all-time great soccer moments. Well, there's two things uh, that, that come to mind. First off, the cramping of Jamie Carragher, which I remember vividly. And there was one play, I think it was in the second half of extra time, where, where he lunges back for this clearance in, in his own box. And you just see him turning back. To, I don't know if he's turning back to the bench, if he's turning back to the crowd, or kind of just yelling to the world going, oh my God, and you see Jamie waving. And then he, he almost stops waving. He goes, wait a minute. I'm not coming out of this thing. I better buck up right now. And then he gets right back up and, and soldiers on. And then there's one other, you reference him coming up and actually not only being on the edge of the box, but being a part of the buildup to the third goal in, in those, those wild six and a half minutes from the 54th to the 60th. And it was Steven Gerrard, of course, getting taken down for the penalty. And Carragher was a huge part of the buildup. Not only was he a huge part of the buildup, I still think back to that play, Graham, and I feel like Manuel Enrique Mahu Gonzalez, who I remember very well, who was the referee for that match. I feel like he half called the penalty and Jamie Carragher half called the penalty as well, because Jamie was right <laughs> on Mahuto Gonzalez within. I mean, Stevie couldn't have been down for more than a half second. And Jamie had already I, lo- looked I, like he had both arms around the referee. And he was saying, I you better. You, I tell you, you're so right. And I tell you what, you made me laugh now because in reviewing the footage before the interview, I saw that even after the penalty was given, Jamie was still trying to convince the referee after he pointed to the spot. The referee, at that moment, the referee could have run up, taken the penalty, scored for Liverpool, and Jamie would have still been calling for that penalty. He was so desperate to get it. Well, you know what I remember, actually, about I think it was Gattuso that took down uh, Gerrard on that play, and I feel like what yeah. ja- first Jamie's saying, you better call the penalty, then he actually, from there, in, in his fit of just gorgeous scouse rage and, and so 
caught up in the heat of the moment. He runs over to the linesman and claims that Gattuso was the last man and that Gattuso actually should have received a red card in the box. He is asking for the red. You're spot on. You're, you're a proper Liverpool fan. I give you that. Chapeau to you. That's bang on. And I, I, I think that um, that's a little microcosm of Jamie's character. Even to this day now, he's still, he's still a little bit larger than life. He's funny, he's quick, he's passionate. He doesn't care very much about having his heart on his sleeve. And quite often, uh, I find in sports, certainly in football, they, I don't know, maybe it's a British thing, but they, there are a lot of players and a lot of managers who want to seem as if they succeed without effort, whereas Jamie's exactly the opposite. He doesn't mind at all if you see all the working pieces. He doesn't matter if you see the the elegant swan above the water and the little orange webbed feet paddling hard underneath. He, you can see the whole lot with him. He lays it all out as long as he wins. <laughs> Without a doubt, one of the great competitors that I've ever seen in all my years watching, playing, coaching, being around the game will always look up to Jamie Carragher. All right, we, we've only got like four minutes left here uh, with you, Graham. You and I could, could go on for hours about these interviews, but I have to ask you about two things, and we've got to save uh, a little minute to talk about uh, the, the Kickstarter project uh, that, that you got going uh, to keep the, the big interview going. But I have to ask you before we, we talk about the Kickstarter project, real quick, can we go back to the first ever Aberdeen match? that you attended and paint a little picture of that experience <laughs> thank you man listen uh, to be quick I guess the first one my dad probably took me to a crazy little game when the, the reserve footballers there were probably only a few hundred there. it was it seemed to me as exciting as Istanbul that night would have seemed to you I, I was it was the late 60s Petrodri football club is Petrodri football ground is on the in North Sea freezing cold different from okay El Nino's playing up today but different from where you are near the Pacific and bitterly cold windy Aberdeen played in all blue in those days rather than the red and white which has been traditional since and I I felt like king of the world and it's it was the instant absolute complete love that I had for those players that game the green turf. The, the smell of pipe tobacco all around me, it was a life-changing experience, albeit that I was only five or six, and the players in front of me weren't famous, they were guys trying to break through, but mate, it was, I can, I can see it and smell it right now, absolutely one of the all-time great days in my life, some 46 years later. <laughs> Well, next time, next time we get you on, Graham, we'll have to uh, we'll have to do an extended segment talking all about your uh, original Aberdeen experiences. I, I got to ask you though before you go uh, to talk about the Kickstarter project uh, that that you started up and and everything and how it relates uh, to the big interview and and the support that that you've received for this thing. You talk about the 1.7 million downloads, and it, it's even more than just a a big number like 1.7 million. It's truly been some some powerful support that you've you've received for this podcast series it, we, we, we wanted to keep it free Nate um, and in order to, to not spend our own money on doing it we needed some sort of budget to travel I live in Spain the guests are normally in the UK we wanted to go further afield to speak to some of the legends of European football and therefore we needed we asked people to support us via crowdfunding and Kickstarter and that was a humbling experience because they rushed to do it we gave them rewards for doing so we're having fiestas for people who backed us in Dublin, Glasgow, London, Aberdeen. A month or so, you're absolutely right. We raised well above our target. I think in the end we made about forty-three thousand pounds, which I don't know. I guess must be about sixty thousand dollars. 
which was um, a good 50% more than we'd asked for. And I say it was humbling because people reached into their pockets and paid for something that they didn't have to pay for. And I found it stimulating. It made me proud of football. That's what it made me proud of again. People wanted to hear good stories about football sufficiently. Not bad stories, not rows, not accusations, not players behaving badly, not people slagging each other off. They wanted to hear the beauty of football explained by ex-footballers and managers sufficiently that they paid for it. And I was pretty pleased. Without a doubt. And everybody, be sure to check it out on uh, on SoundCloud. You can go right to soundcloud.com slash the big interview. And every one of these shows that, that we've discussed here on World Soccer Talk Radio today is on here going all the way back to the, the Gary Neville episode, analyzing the analysts. They're all about 48 minutes long, some about 60 minutes long. They are all so enjoyable to listen to. Obviously, I'm a little bit biased because none of them have, have matched the Jamie Carragher Istanbul 10 years on. For me, but I really encourage everybody check out the part one and part two with David Moyes, the conversations with Harry Redknapp, uh, which Graham talked about earlier in the show, the Chris Waddle episode. I, the, the the list goes on and on. I encourage everybody go to SoundCloud.com slash the big interview and listen to all of these. You will not be disappointed. Graham Hunter, thank you so much for your time, sir, and you're welcome back on this show anytime. Nate, you're a star. It's been a great pleasure. Again, that was Graham Hunter. Cheers to him. We're back after this, closing this thing out right here on Sports by Lines. Stay tuned. What a pleasure and privilege that was having that man on the show. Another huge tip of my cap to Graham Hunter and everybody be sure to check out soundcloud.com slash the big interview and check out all the editions of that podcast series that we were discussing here on this show today. Every last one of them is just so unique and so, so outstanding in such a unique fashion. And these are truly heart to heart conversations with all of these names in the footballing world. And of course, I'm a little bit partial to the Jamie Cadigan episode. So I encourage everybody to check that one out without a doubt. And also find Mr. Hunter on Twitter at Bumper Graham. Again, that's at Bumper Graham. Find me on Twitter at Nate WST. My name is Nate Abarea signing off. Talk to you tomorrow. World Soccer Talk Radio. Love you. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 